pleasure to, to welcome Michael Morris here. Uh, he, his book on this Scotland and the Caribbean was indeed published uh, last year, I think. Last year, yeah. And there are a whole series of other uh, interesting and related articles uh, which he published on and around this topic. And you can see, I will not repeat the title today, but I'll just remind you that he will give his presentation for roughly 45 minutes and we will have ample time for questions, so uh, that, that's the procedure, and we'll pass over to Michael. Oh, thank you very much. Hello, uh, and thank you uh, to Gad, and it's really nice to see you, and um, thanks very much for, for coming out. I'll maybe stand up, actually, that's going to be easier. Um, I'd like to begin uh, by having a look at the great tapestry of Scotland, um, which was unveiled in September 2013. Um, it's been on show at the Scottish Parliament, it's made national tours, and it's now found a home at uh, Tweed Bank as part of a multi-million pound uh, investment in tourism to the borders. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but it is a, an absolutely magnificent thing. It's uh, 160 panels, all hand-woven by volunteers. Uh, it claims to be the largest hand-woven tapestry in the world. Um, it tells, or it claims to tell the story uh, or it tells a selective story of Scotland all the way from the la end of the last Ice Age all the way up to Andy Murray's victory at Wimbledon in 2013. Um, a comprehensive story, I'm sure. Um, but obviously I went along thinking, OK, but what does it have to say about slavery? Um, well, we can have a look at this panel just here. This is a panel dedicated to the Glasgow tobacco lords, uh, 18th century merchants who made their fortune from tobacco. Um, so you can see the panel then, you've got two or three uh, tobacco lords all dressed in their finery, nice and front and centre um, on this kind of panel of glory, I suppose, a kind of glorious narrative of fortune and development. You can also see um, stitched through the kind of Atlantic winds here are some names of Glasgow streets which carry their names, uh, so Buchanan Street, for example, Ingram Street and Glassford Street, um, as well as Virginia Street and Jamaica Street, um, which uh, um, herald the source of their wealth. Also in the corners here, you can see this is the columns which form the Cunningham Mansion. Um, William Cunningham was a, a major tobacco lord. Um, his mansion now forms actually the Gallery of Modern Art, in Glasgow, very significant um, building. Um, up on the top right, you can see uh, tobacco pipes. And in the bottom right, I'm not exactly sure what this is. I don't know if you might be able to recognise it. It seems to say the last gasp uh, and then some kind of squirrel in the middle. I'm not exactly sure, but you can maybe let me know once you figure it out. Um, so slavery is almost completely absent. But I say almost because in fact if you look up here into the top left oh. corner you have the, the chains and manacles, quite gruesome iconography made famous by the abolitionist campaign. And in fact if you look a little bit closer down here apparently growing out of the toe of one of the tobacco lords we have a brown face. See it just here? Um, so I thought, how strange. <laughs> uh, maybe the text accompanying the panel will expand a little bit more 
um, and tell us what's going on here. But no, all the text says, in fact, at the bottom is that after the American War of Independence, Glasgow's canny merchants turned their attention to sugar in the West Indies. So I'd like to suggest that this quite curious example um, is symbolic of the kind of current ambivalent position of slavery in Scottish national memory. It's both half-emerged and half-submerged. Um, how to interpret this quite strange image? Uh, on the one hand, we might say that slavery is present yet absent. Um, it's pushed quite literally to the margins of the image, unexplained and unexplored, as we're invited to admire instead the good business sense of Glasgow's canny merchants. Um, just to give an idea of the size of the panel as well, this particular panel is about this size. Okay? Uh, just two panels down from it is a panel dedicated to the founding of the first golf course at St Andrews in 1787, and the size of that panel is about this size. Okay? Just keep that, keep that image in mind um, as we go along. Alternatively, of course, we might uh, reinterpret this image as one in which slavery encroaches on the borders of the tobacco lord's narrative. Um, as much as you try to sanitise the story, slavery never fully disappears. The chains return as a kind of a haunting presence, and we might even want to interpret um, this figure here as a, as a kind of black figure erupting from below deck, ready to disrupt the tapestry's ideology of smooth, canny progress. So what my, my, what my research looks to do then is to kind of unpick the stitching uh, of such tapestries, to unravel their meanings. Um, and I think we'll also be wanting to look for ways to, to reweave slavery more fully into the tapestry of Scottish national memory. Um, okay, so it's generally accepted that until recently slavery has been marked by a collective amnesia in Scotland. Uh, since the early 1990s there's been a, a small but growing voice of more or less isolated voices which have broken that silence. And I'm thinking here particularly of writers like uh, James Kelman and Angus Calder, uh, but also the poet uh, Jackie Kay. Uh, Jackie Kay was just yesterday announced as the new um, uh, Macha for Scotland, the, the national poet. Uh, so congratulations to Jackie. Um, these voices grew to a kind of a small stream, particularly around uh, the events commemorating abolition in 2007. Historians Eric Graham, Ian White and Jeff Palmer <coughs> in particular. But this has now come to greater prominence um, and really I think uh, um, it, was, it was the summer of 2014 <coughs> that I think might well turn out to be a bit of a turning point because a variety of projects came together to push slavery much more prominently into the public consciousness in Scotland. So I just want to run through um, a few examples for you. Uh, the first one is an organisation called Flag Up Scotland Jamaica, um, which operates on a kind of a political level. Um, it seeks to use the, the shared um, saltire flag between... <coughs> Scotland and Jamaica. Um, I don't know if you know the story of these uh, flags, actually. It was uh, around the time of independence for Jamaica, 1962. Um, there was a, a Reverend William McGee, 
um, who was a Presbyterian Church of Scotland minister out in Jamaica at the time, and he was close with uh, Bustamante, the first um, um, uh, president of, of Jamaica, Bustamante. They had decided on the new colours for the Jamaican flag. They decided on green, black and gold, but they hadn't quite chosen their design yet. So William McGee came into this meeting and heard these conversations going and said, listen lads, don't worry about it, show me your colours, I'll make a design for you. <laughs> uh, the good Scotsman came back with a saltire and the rest is history. Um, so the organisation seeks to use this kind of shared uh, flag story as a platform, a springboard onto asking kind of deeper questions about recognition, recovering memory and reparations. Um, they've actually succeeded, this is Graham Campbell by the way, one of the, uh, the organisers of the, of the group, they have, re they have succeeded in getting questions asked in the Scottish Parliament just recently and are proposing that Jamaica is, um, is formed as what's called a priority country for Scotland along the lines of Malawi, um, so it would be a priority trading um, country. Um, in, the cult in the cultural sphere I also want to flag up an amazing um, piece of street theatre called Emancipation Acts, uh, which uh, commemorated Emancipation Day, 1st of August, for the first time in Scotland. Um, it was a kind of roving piece of street theatre that went around four sites in Glasgow's Merchant City. The Merchant City built upon tobacco merchants, supposedly. Um, so, for example, it turned the Ramshorn Cut graveyard where several tobacco merchants are buried. It turned that into uh, Banse Island. Uh, Banse Island is a Scottish-owned slaving fortress just off the coast of Sierra Leone. Uh, Banse Island famously um, was a location for Africa's first golf course where the slave caddies were decked out in tartan. This was tartan which was woven in the village of Bannockburn, if you know your Scottish history. Um, so the actors um, at Van Sylland reminded us of the importance of, um, of the actions of the enslaved themselves in, in, in slave revolts and ended slavery. Um, at City Halls, the audience heard a kind of ersatz version of a ladies' abolitionist society speech. At Virginia Court, we heard a very skillful justification of slavery drawn from the arguments of James McQueen. Uh, James McQueen, very prominent pro-slavery intellectual and uh, editor of the Glasgow Courier, um, and David Lambert um, of this parish has, uh, has, um, has written about James McQueen recently. The final example um, I just want to bring up for you is that it's another play, this time inside a theatre, um, by Scottish Jamaican writer Lou Prendergast, and it's called Bloodlines, um, came on in 2014 as well. It concerns her relationship with her absentee father, um, Harry, Harry Prendergast. This is Harry, this is Lou just in the front here, and this is her father, Harry, um, in the background here. Harry was a Jamaican pimp and drug dealer who operated in the criminal underworld of uh, 1960s Glasgow. So it's, the play kind of combines her quite complicated um, feelings about her family history but opens out to broader questions around Scotland and empire. Importantly, as well, it also recovers other kind of historical Scottish Jamaicans with mixed blood, with mixed blood lines. Um, so, for example, 
uh, Mary Seacole and Robert Weatherburn. Uh, Mary Seacole, kind of Jamaican uh, adventurer, I suppose. Um, uh, you may know that Seacole, right at the start of her uh, wonderful adventures of, of Mrs. Seacole, she boasts of her Scottish blood. She has a Scottish father. And she says that this Scottish blood is what gives her such energy and vigour. It's a Scottish blood which really transports her across the globe. Um, meanwhile, Robert Wedderburn says that his blood boils when he thinks about the sexual abuse of his mother, Rosanna, at the hands of his slave-owning Scottish father, James Wedderburn. Robert would, in fact, go on to lead uh, radical working-class movements in 19th century London. He became what we might think of as an Atlantic revolutionary. Uh, he would urge the London poor to emulate the Haitian revolution, uh, to rise up against their landowners in Britain, just as he would urge the enslaved in the, in the colonies to rise up against their masters. Um, so this play then was quite a spectacle that featured singing, um, including a kind of a dazzling rebuke to the misogyny of dance hall lyrics. It featured dancing. There was a reimagined um, version of a, a John Canoe performance. And it featured myself making my stage debut in the role of lecturer. Uh, I took no part in the singing or dancing, you'll be relieved to, relieved to hear. Uh, so, this um, combination of efforts, uh, by the way, the image here is from a, an exhibition which was on in London uh, last year, which was called Tartan, its journey through the African diaspora, um, which was a phenomenal exhibition, um, which I'd, I'd urge anybody to, to, to check out. Um, this is the cover of my book, which is much a more boring kind of uh, image, so that's why I've combined, uh, combined these two. So the combination of efforts um, over the last uh, few years is building a momentum in which I'd argue that the Caribbean is crucial for Scotland for uh, two main reasons. Um, first of all, the recovery of the memory of slavery uh, in a Scottish context is a sobering and necessary revision to the nation's political and cultural history. Indeed, the other unavoidable context from 2014 um, is, of course, the independence referendum uh, that September. Um, the independence referendum has, I think it's fair to say, led to quite a raised level of questioning and critical reassessment. Scotland has been reassessing its position within the United Kingdom and the wider world. Now, the mainstream of that campaign has looked to kind of to cement a kind of a social democratic um, consensus, but the liveliest sections of the campaign have promoted independence as a break from what they call the Westminster uh, model or the Westminster system, most significantly as a way to pursue anti-war, uh, peace, equality, and internationalism. So, for my part, I advocate that Scotland's long-obscured relationships with the Black Atlantic should form a valuable part of this political, cultural and historical reassessment of both Scottish Unionist and Scottish Nationalist narratives. And I'll come on uh, to speak a bit more about that in a second. The second related point is that the Caribbean has been leading the way in exploring the archipelago um, as a concept of political and cultural identity. 
So an archipelago, right, is like a group of islands. Yeah, I'm sure we're all, it's a very common term. Um, given that the constitutional arrangements of, um, of the British Isles have become, shall we say, a little bit strained in recent years, uh, Caribbean approaches may help to bring new energy to the rethinking of the British Isles as an Atlantic archipelago. Um, this was initiated by the historian John Pocock in 1975. So the research in the book then kind of stands at the cross-section of these two currents of historical revisionism. Um, so I'd like to suggest that updating John Pocock's archipelagic model can help with uh, kind of Scotland's current rethinking its position in the United Kingdom, um, just as it helps with mapping Scotland into the Black Atlantic and recovering the memory of slavery in particular. <coughs> My research then takes a devolved approach to the Black Atlantic. It works alongside recent studies on particular regions of England, as well as Wales, Ireland and Northern Ireland. So why is this a useful approach? First of all, it allows us to deepen and nuance our, under, our understanding of how the Black Atlantic shaped the internal histories of nations beyond the most obvious port towns. Secondly, it allows us to situate Scotland as a site of empire and resistance within the Black Atlantic world. Most obviously, I think, this allows us to dispel the myth that Scots represent the friendly face of the British Empire. Right? We are more democratic, more sympathetic, that wee bit friendlier than our neighbours to the south. Finally, and more optimistically, the recovery of that memory might locate episodes of resistance and solidarity that can lead to fundamental questions, not only of nation, but of slavery and capitalism, race, class and gender, as we examine colonial wounds and ponder post-colonial reparation. Um, so this kind of questioning can and should impact on Scottish narratives of history and identity in the present and feed into some of the kind of wider political uh, reassessment that's been going on um, more recently. Okay, so I'm going to come on to think about um, some of the ways that we might begin to do that. Um, but before we begin to remember, it's worth considering how we managed to forget um, it's generally accepted that the kind of amnesia around slavery in Scotland has been prolonged. It's gone on for longer than it has done in England. So I want to think about why that might be. Um, identifying four main layers of amnesia. Um, the first one, kind of very uh, broadly speaking... Oh, sorry. First of all, um, I'd like to address a point which I'm seeing repeated more and more at the moment, which is that slavery was not talked about uh, in Scottish history because Scottish history in general was not written about well until at least the 1960s. So this relates to quite a long-standing nationalist critique that Scottish history is underserved in schools and museums and, and whatnot. So however compelling these arguments may be in certain contexts, I have to say that I don't consider this to be a major factor when it comes to the memory of slavery. Um, former slaving societies in which there is a more kind of straightforward alignment between nation and state I'm thinking here of England, Denmark, France, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, these countries have been every bit as amnesiac as Scotland. Nation-state histories have all tended to suppress the slavery 
passed. Um, the claim also simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny. If we actually look at various Scottish histories from the 19th and 20th centuries, slavery is there, right? It's present, but it's negotiated, it's marginalised, and it's excused. So what, what this suggests, then, is that more fundamental forces of memory, hegemony, were at play, so that blaming the Union just won't do for this one. Um, so... The more fundamental forces then, the first layer of amnesia in Marxist terminology is processes of mystification, right? In a capitalist economy, how wealth is produced, whether by free or unfree labour, is always mystified. It's obscured. More specifically, uh, the second layer of amnesia concerns the distribution of the 20th century mass migration of Caribbeans folk uh, to Britain. That was inaugurated by the arrival of the SS Windrush in 1948. So it's called that New Commonwealth Migration is the name for it, isn't it? Um, so large groups were dispersed to fill labour shortages around uh, London, Liverpool, Birmingham and the Midlands. However, no corresponding sizeable West Indian communities developed in Scotland at that time. This combines with the fact that Glasgow lacks the longer settled African and Caribbean communities found in other Atlantic ports, such as Liverpool and Cardiff, right? Glasgow doesn't have that same legacy. Um, and I've given you just some statistics from the recent uh, census. Um, the recent census suggested that 4% identified as black or minority ethnic in Scotland in 2011, um, but 0.6% uh, as African, African, Scottish or black, 0.1% as Caribbean or black, which represents about 7,000 people, and that's your comparative um, figures for the 2011 census in England. Just to cl clarify as well, 4% um, in Scotland, that's largely been, I think, from the policy of the redistribution of refugees uh, since 1999, so these are not um, kind of Caribbean people necessarily. Um, this figure, 2011 figure, in 2001, that stood at 2% BME in Scotland, in 1991, it was 1%. Okay. So, that what this means then is that Scotland lacked the same critical mass which could consistently push for a reappraisal of Scottish racism and amnesia. Instead, what we found was that there was a first wave of post-colonial scholarship um, which was much more interested in exploring affinities between Scottish national or specifically working class, marginalisation and African and Caribbean post-colonialism. Scotland, the argument goes, is a victim of Anglo-centrism in much the same way that colonised others face Eurocentrism. <laughs> so, what they did was, like, rather than fully re-examining the actual realities of the history of empire, the Scottish position distance itself from the mainstream of British imperial history. I'm glad to say that this kind of first wave of post-colonial work has now been superseded uh, by more nuanced accounts in the likes of Carla Sassi's Within and Without Empire from 2013. Um, okay, the third and fourth layers of amnesia then, uh, they concern narratives of development which remain influential today um, in 
Geoffrey Cubitt's memorable phrase uh, in the 19th century, the, the history of slavery was, quote, submerged beneath the history of abolitionism in Britain as a whole. Um, and <coughs> Scottish Victorians in particular developed this kind of cult of David Livingstone, born in Blantyre, worked in the Blantyre Mills, came to Glasgow and became a, um, a missionary, an anti-slavery missionary to Africa. Um, so in the context of what Richard Hussey calls Britain's 19th century anti-slavery empire, Scottish Victorians developed this kind of civilising enlightenment line uh, which would boast of the Scottish contribution to empire, but it was only in kind of legitimate areas like medicine, education, uh, technology, engineering, and, um, and, and mission work. All of these undertaken with a certain Caledonian vigour. The fourth layer, and I think the quite crucial one, is the, is the development of Scottish nationalist narratives in the early 20th century, uh, what's called the Scottish Renaissance. Um, socialists and nationalists didn't boast about the Scottish contribution to Britain and Empire, but instead they developed a new line that situated Scotland itself as an oppressed nation, a colonised nation, more in line with the likes of India, Mexico or Ireland. Uh, Sister Island, as it was called. Um, it was quite difficult to incorporate the slavery past into this image of Scotland as a, a kind of a Celtic victim of empire. Um, there's also a problem, by the way, with dates, um, because the most kind of intense period of Scottish-Caribbean relations um, is probably about the mid-18th to the early 19th centuries. But these exist problematically in relation to the seminal events of the Act of Union, 1707, and the Battle of Culloden, the, the defeat of the Jacobites in Bonnie Prince Charlie at Culloden in 1746. So in, in Scottish nationalist uh, understanding, these events uh, kind of uh, rupture the continuity of the national story. Um, they kind of render Scotland a passive entity in historical processes. So that when the topic of slavery in Scotland does come up, the focus tends to be on colliers who, until 1799, were held in bonded uh, conditions, or the focus is on indentured servants. Uh, and both of these groups are called Scottish slaves uh, in a way that probably too quickly, too conveniently conflates those two categories. The historical responsibility for slavery is kind of displaced onto the British state in which Scots themselves were supposedly marginalised. Um, so what I'm arguing basically is that Scottish nationalist narratives have largely combined with Scottish unionist narratives uh, to exclude the colonial slaving past to the margins of the collective memory. Um, however, there has been since the 1990s a strain of historical revisionism. Uh, much of which has been collected together in this uh, new publication, which came out just last year, uh, Recovering Scotland's Slavery Past, the Caribbean Connection. So the editor, uh, Tom Devine, Professor Sir Tom Devine, as he is now, uh, describes this as a revolution in native historiography. In short, the new revisionism argues that although Scotland had limited direct involvement with slave trade ships, so only 27 ships left from Scottish ports. Um, those 27 ships left from Greenock, uh, Port Glasgow, Leith and Montrose. 
Uh, yet, the colonial trade in sugar, tobacco and cotton has long been recognised as crucial to Scotland's economic growth. However, the enslaved labour which produced these crops in the New World was dissociated from this tale of canny entrepreneurial success. So the career of Professor Sir Tom Devine might actually be quite illuminating in this regard. Um, So he built his reputation really on a 1975 study on the Glasgow Tobacco Lords, right? Um, A book-length account of this which managed to scarcely mention slavery um, all the way through. But he came back in 2011 um, with an essay, the title of which was Did Slavery Make Scotia Great? So quite a deliberately provocative question. Um, the actual argument revisits Eric Williams's main thesis to propose that Scotland's comparatively poorer situation at the start of the 18th century might more clearly illustrate Eric Williams's main argument that uh, slavery underpinned industrial capitalism. So Divine notes how slavery filtered through investments in land ownership and large-scale agricultural improvements, as well as investments in the staple industries of textiles, so silk, linen, wool and cotton, coal mining and iron, as well as smaller industries such as rope and sail-making, glassworks and brewing. Stephen Mullen extends and expands this revised approach, and he offers qualified support for Williams. Uh, So Mullen examines the Glasgow West India merchants, Um, And he details the capital flows from plantation to Scottish commerce and banking from 1776 up to 1846. Um, Okay, my own research then looks to build on that kind of economic and social history, but I focus more on a kind of a cultural history. Um, So as such, I'm interested in exploring Pocock's term Atlantic archipelago, uh, which urges a move away from an Anglo-centric perspective on British history. The strength for me is about moving from a kind of broad era of cultural nationalism uh, to a more transnational paradigm which doesn't simply reject or or forget about the nation altogether. Um, So recent theoretical thinking around islands and archipelagos has emphasised the way that if we think about a group of islands, it can give us a sense of being linked and divided, insular and interdependent. So John Kerrigan uh, promotes the term Noah. The suggestion, by the way, is that instead of referring to the British Isles, we should refer to Noah, right, the northwestern Atlantic archipelago. So I don't know if that one has taken off just yet, <laughs> uh, but we can try. Um, so the term moves away from the 19th century sense of Britain as an island nation, right? an island nation that is singular, indomitable and isolated. An isolation that is, of course, splendid. Instead, this term, uh, Noah, does three related things. It designates a geopolitical unit or zone stretching from the Channel Islands to the Shetlands, from the Wash to Galway Bay, with ties to North America and down to the Caribbean. It does so neutrally, avoiding the assumptions loaded into the term the British Isles, and it implies a devolved, interconnected account 
of what went wrong around, of what went on around <laughs> these islands. Excuse me. Oh, dear. What would the Freudians say? Um, I'm intrigued then to explore these kind of watery ties, in particular pursuing them into the archipelago of the Caribbean, where the Atlantic Ocean has particular significance. So, for example, the St. Lucian poet Derek Walcott, um, his poem The Sea is History, um, in that the, the sea holds a memory of the stories and spirits of the victims of slavery in a more profound way than a mere archive on land. Uh, what I'm interested in then is kind of opening up Scottish national memory to this kind of watery archive, creating a less bounded, more Atlantic, uh, archipelagic kind of memory. Um, if we're doing this kind of memory work then, how is slavery best conceived? Um, and this is a kind of a, a tricky, this kind of tricky question about where does slavery fit in? Um, so I subscribe to the view that slavery is best understood not so much as a unique manifestation of historical evil, uh, but it can be placed in a, in a longer historical trajectory of a global history where slavery was ubiquitous. I'm borrowing the language here from, whoops, uh, from uh, Adam Beach and uh, Swaminathan. Uh, so they say that this, they argue that this, this contextualization doesn't diminish the extreme manifestation of race-based chattel slavery in the Atlantic world. Rather, it allows us to recognize that chattel slavery was part of a continuum of human labor exploitation and oppression. So they say that we want to think about Atlantic slavery as interlocking with Ottoman and African slaveries, as well as interlocking with classes of poor English, Scottish and Irish indentured servants and transported criminals, who they say were uh, essentially slaves themselves. So that's, I think, the kind of division that I'm trying to aim for. It's this kind of international and interlocking system of multiple slaveries, uh, as well as convict labour, bonded servants and child labour, etc., I would probably want to be a bit more careful with this question of um, to what extent they were essentially slaves themselves because it has been, uh, since the 19th century, one of the central ways that the specifics of chattel slavery has been elided and diminished. Indeed, up to the present day, the modern recovery of the memory of slavery in Scotland has been opposed by other competing memories of um, of grievance and exploitation. So if you look at any kind of web forum, any kind of web chat, whenever an article comes up saying, you know, it's Scotland's shame or slavery or whatever, immediately the, the comments come in saying, you know, what are you talking about that for? How are you know talking about the Glasgow slums? How are you know talking about indentured servants? Um, how are you know talking about the Highland clearances? Um, things like that. Um, so I think it would be justified to basically dismiss this as false equivalence. But what I'd like to do instead is to take an approach inspired by Michael Rothberg, who, in the context of the Holocaust and decolonisation, writes of multi-directional memory. Um, so what that means is that memory isn't competitive. We don't have to play off um, child labour in mills or bonded colliers against slavery. The recovery of the memory of slavery is not intended to displace working-class grievance it is intended to integrate the picture as part of an interconnected whole, part of a kind of a deeply entangled history of Atlantic 
uh, modernity. So therefore, if that's what we're aiming for, how do we actually do this? How do we paint this picture of Scotland's deeply entangled Atlantic archipelagic watery archive of memory, blah, blah, blah? Um, well, what I've figured out is that if you... T I don't know if you've been to Glasgow, um, but if you take the central square in Glasgow, it's called George Square. Um, George Square has 12 statues in it. And what I figured out is that every one of those statues has some kind of connection to slavery and abolition. Excuse me if I sound a little bit smug about this realisation. Um, what I would say statues have been in the news recently um, in Oxford, of, uh, amongst other places. Um, what I'd like to argue is that we can use those statues to unfold a hidden history of empire. And this would weave slavery through Scotland's already existing public memory of commerce, politics, science, the military, industry, academia, and. Hand yeah. Thank you very much for listening.